Back when um, we were working our way through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, by the way, I think everybody knows, but if you're, if you're visiting and don't know, we've been teaching through the book of Matthew. Uh, Bob is not here today. He's taught most of it. I did speak uh, once or twice in that on, on weeks when he wasn't around. Um, but when we were through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, that was broken into several uh, Sundays, and it ended with the people being amazed at Jesus' authority. He spoke with authority, not like their scribes and teachers and religious leaders. And I hope that as you heard Jonah reading through that passage, uh, you could kind of see that coming out. Because in, in, by way of background, um, G- this is at the end of a confrontation that has gone on through a series of people and groups who have been trying to trap Jesus. They've been challenging his authority and trying to trap him in what he says. And at the end of chapter 22, he has finally uh, turned the tables around and asked them a question that they can't answer. And that coupled with how he has brilliantly answered their questions Uh, and I should say answered them with authority, has led to a point where they have nothing left to say to him. No other questions. They give up in that angle. They haven't given up in trying to destroy him, but they have given up in trying to trick or trap him. And that is the setting where Matthew 23 now plays out. So I just want to go a little through a little bit of background this is this this is happening. This this is uh, this message by Jesus is happening on a Monday or Tuesday in the week of his crucifixion. So Palm Sunday was just either the day before or two days before. Uh, another thing that I want to point out to you is, I believe that Matthew twenty one through starting with verse twenty three which says, And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and elders came to him as he was teaching. And the first thing that they try is to challenge him on his authority because the day before he has driven the money money lenders and uh, the money changers and the people selling animals, he's driven them out of the temple. Uh, And so that has been a direct challenge to their authority and they now want to know what authority do you do these things. They don't spell out exactly what it is. I think that cleansing the temple the day before triggered this. The question is plural, so all the various things he's doing, but that's probably what's triggered it. But starting with Matthew 21, 23, and going all the way through Matthew 26, uh, verse 2, I think is all happening the same day. We can debate whether it's on Monday or Tuesday, I don't think it can possibly be on Wednesday because of other things that are said in the Scriptures. And by the way, if you want to talk more about uh, either why I think it's all happening in one day or which day of the week, um, we can talk about that um, later. That's not critical to what we're talking about in Matthew 23. But in terms of background, it's interesting to note it. Uh, Matthew 26 says, and and it came about, 26 verse 1, and when it came about, that Jesus had finished all these words, he said to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. So, in Matthew and Mark, we get some clues on what's happened since uh, Palm Sunday. 
That's why I put it on Monday or Tuesday. And here with him saying two days um, to the Passover is coming, that's where, that's where this ends. And 26 verse 3 says the chief priests and elders go off um, plotting against him. In the big picture, he has come into Jerusalem and he has come to be crucified and to rise from the dead. And it's almost like he has to force their hand. They're already plotting and scheming against him, but he bats back every ball they throw at him, and they're now at the point where they've got to look for a betrayer, and that's what's going to play out. And in subsequent Sundays, uh, Bob will be teaching on into and through that. But that's the, that's the context of this. Uh, I think that Matthew twenty one twenty three, which said he had entered the temple, from there through the end of what we're talking about today, is all in the temple. Chapter 24, verse 1 says he came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out the temple buildings to him. And then comes 24 and 25 where he talks about end times. Um, So all of what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks and today is all in the temple on the same day. And then there's more teaching that Jesus gives that continues after he leaves the temple all on the same day. And by the way, just as an aside, one of the wonderful things God has done, one of the rich things in giving us four Gospels, um, it just adds richness and depth to the picture of Christ, to what we know about Him. Uh, I, I think of in the Old Testament law where God talks about you don't find anyone guilty unless you have the testimony of at least two witnesses. Well, we got four with four Gospels. Um, but they're all unique. Mark is what most Bible scholars think. He, he was discipled by Peter, and most Bible scholars think that this is Peter's gospel that Mark's passing on. It's the simple gospel, uh, quick-hitting, doesn't dwell long, rarely gives us more details than the other gospels. Sometimes it does, but rare. It's just short and sweet message getting the gospel across. Uh, that's what Peter was probably teaching in the churches of Judea and, and in Jerusalem. So that's, Mar- that's Mark's gospel. With Luke, um, Luke starting midway through chapter 9, I'll find it for you. Just in, in, you, you may be aware of this, but just in case you've never heard this, Matthew 9 verse 51 says, It came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's up in Galilee. But in chapter 10, he sends the 70 out in pairs to a bunch of cities. So he's set his mind he's going to go to Jerusalem because his ascension's coming. Well, what's going to happen before his ascension? His crucifixion and his resurrection. So from my claim is that from Luke 9, verse 51, to the middle of Luke 19, which is where uh, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem happens on Palm Sunday... Ten whole chapters of Luke, mid-chapter 9 to mid-chapter 19, is all this relatively slow trip Jesus is taking, but all focused on Jerusalem, where he's going in a bunch of cities and villages. And Luke gives us a richness of things we don't find in any of the other Gospels. Several of Jesus' parables and stories, things that happened. Uh, With Matthew, we've got several major teachings by Christ that we don't find at this depth 
anywhere else. We find parts of them, but not in this depth. And then, of course, John focusing on Jesus as uh, deity, as God in the flesh, is a major theme of the book of John. So anyway, I, I just, as an aside, pointing that out. So the attempts to challenge Jesus and to trap him have come to an end. They've just ended as we enter where uh, Jonah was reading in Matthew 23. So the first 12 verses I'm calling warnings, then the rest of it is woes. But he's speaking to different groups. In these warnings, there's a who that we get answered for us in the first couple of verses. There's actually two groups, and each group has two groups. So the first group is who's the warnings for? Therefore, the multitudes and his disciples. Um, We've talked before in various messages and teachings about how Jesus had the 12 disciples that he specially chose to be with him all the time, but he had a larger group of disciples that were following him. When this says disciples, it's probably a larger group, not just the 12, but it's definitely the 12. Then there's the multitudes, lots of people who have been coming out for three years now, wherever Jesus is, to hear him. Some of them want to hear his message. Some of them want to see a miracle. Some of them are just curious. Some of them are coming out of necessity and love for family members who are ill, sick, demon-possessed, and they're bringing to him, hoping that he can help their loved ones. They're coming from all kinds of reasons. But in the temple, probably in the outer court, where a lot of people can fit, Uh, That's where this is happening, and he's just finished the last of the debate with the the series of religious leaders which fall into different categories themselves. And he turns to the multitudes and disciples to give these warnings, in public, obviously. But the warnings are about another group of people, and that's two groups, scribes and Pharisees, who are probably still in the crowd after all the debate that's been happening, the attempts to trap him. They're still around when, this, when the rest of chapter 23 plays out. So I, I, I want to pause here for a moment. Who knows what the scribes are? How would you describe them? What do the scribes do? Copy. Yeah, yeah. So they're taking the manuscripts they have of the Old Testament and they're making copies. And that's what's filling the synagogues. And at this point, it's, it's going overseas, too. Wherever Jews have gone, where they have synagogues, their readings are being... The scribes are the ones who are doing all that copying. They're also doing some translation, because Greek is now the language of the day. By Jesus' day, um, the Septuagint had already been written, which was the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek. So the scribes are those copiers and translators... And they also fall into the role as teaching because since they're copying and translating so much, they know what's in it very well. Now, they're not necessarily the ones who would teach theology in that day, but they're, they know what's there. Just as if, if out of all of us, if there was someone who had been reading the Bible day in and day out all their lives and all the rest of us just became Christians last week, You know, that person, even if he's not a Pharisee, because he's been in the Bible so much, would be the knowledgeable one who could tell us stuff about it. Well, the scribes had a secondary role doing that. They were teachers. Their primary role, however, was the copying and the translating. What do you know about the Pharisees? Who were they? 
Religious authorities. What else? Lawyers. Lawyers. How would you differentiate Pharisees from other religious leader groups that I haven't named yet? What's special about Pharisees? Yeah, so they are more the ones that would be do the theological teaching as well as the mention of lawyers interpreting what all of it means and how does it apply. And the specific thing that hasn't been mentioned that needs to be added here is they viewed the Old Testament as literally the Word of God. They were in their day the conservatives who thought the Word of God was to be taken word for word and God meant what He said in it. The problem was that over years they had gotten caught up more into worrying about what people thought. And they had also added a whole lot of interpretive laws when you think about the rabbis, um, you know, deciding what's work, you know, and um, how far can I walk in a day before it's work. I gave you an example last time I taught on a Sunday morning about uh, if my dog dies on my porch, is my house now unclean? And this goes back to something dead touching something else, making it unclean. And they had decided that if the dog dies in the house, the house is unclean. If the dog dies out in the yard, the house is clean. If the dog dies on the threshold, on the porch, then it depends on which way he's facing. If he's facing in, then the house is unclean. If he's facing out, the house is clean. The rabbis were the ones that figured that out, and most of the rabbis were Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the ones who viewed... They had a high view of God's Word, but they also had lost a lot of the spirit and heart of it in all of this detailed interpreting every little thing in order, well, in fairness to them, to answer people's questions who were not... They weren't questions aimed at the heart of the matter, but more at the... The surface of the matter, check in the box type thing. So, who's left out of this that we've talked about the last week or two when Bob's been speaking? Sadducees. What do you know about Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. The Sadducees had a very... Li- they would be the liberals of their day. They were the liberals of their day. Their view of the Word of God, of the, of the Old Testament that they had at that time was a pick-and-choose mentality. They didn't view it as literally all the Word of God with His authority. And so the Sadducees had um, beliefs that were far detached from what God actually said. Um, And that's why in last week's message over in Matthew 22, uh, Bob was teaching on that, you have the Sadducees coming to pose the question about the woman who's married to seven different brothers as each of them dies... Which one is, is uh, she going to be married to in heaven? What they really, they don't believe there is a heaven. They don't believe that there's a resurrection. But they got this elaborate trap question to try to get at that. Who else is left out of this that got mentioned in chapter 22? Last week or two. Last week. You remember? Who are the uh, uh, Herodians? Who are they? Unbelievers. Okay, unbelievers. I don't know that I would go quite that far in their day, but yes, they're a political faction. So they care more about politics than than the religious stuff. And that's why Jesus, uh, the Pharisees, when they asked him the question about should we pay taxes to Caesar, they brought the Herodians along with them. 
Because if he says um, if he says no, then they can get him in trouble with the with the political faction. Um, okay. So I see three warnings here, and I'm just gonna get them all up here on the screen. I I'm jumping ahead slightly, but I think what comes after verse five are all examples of of the verse five item. So going in order, he says uh, in verse three. So again, he's talking to the multitudes and his disciples with the scribes and Pharisees out in the crowd. They say things and do not do them, verse 3. Oh, by the way, on those different groups, I, I need to point this out. The beginning of verse, the end of verse 2, he says, the, Fer- the scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the seat of Moses. Moses was the man God used to bring the people out of slavery in Egypt and spoke all of the law through. So he was the intermediary between them and God in regard to the law. What's right and wrong to do? Um, I, want, I was going to say, and who God is, although I'm not sure the character of God is as strong in that as in other things that God revealed. Well, his character is strong through the law. Um, but they've seated themselves, put themselves in the seat of Moses. It's significant that Jesus at the beginning of verse 3 says, Observe all they tell you, do and observe. But then there's a but. Before I get to the but, it's interesting to me. I don't think he would have said this of the Sadducees who had the pick and choose mentality. Of the Pharisees and the scribes, he says what they say to do, observe it and do it. Which means they're not really teaching error. They're accurately, relatively accurately, in the big picture of what all is available to them there, as between the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, they must be teaching fairly well. He says, do and observe what they tell you. But, middle of verse 3, do not do according to their deeds. Why? For they say things and do not do them. This is what we would call hypocrisy. And we're all familiar with it. And we've all, in one way or another, fallen into it ourselves. You say you're going to do something, and then you don't. Now, it's easier for us to think about other people being that way. And we easily probably can come up with examples of other people who are that way. But at some point in your life, you have done that in some way yourself. You say something, but you don't do it. The second thing is they create heavy burdens for people, and they don't help. And that has to do with all the laws and putting the law on their shoulders, no grace, no message of, of forgiveness through faith. Forgiveness comes through the sacrificial rituals. And there's just this burden that people have on them, and the Pharisees aren't going to lift a finger to help them. And then the third thing is they do all their works to be seen by men. In um, verse 5, he, sa- he says that they do their, their works to be seen by men. And then he gives a bunch of examples. Uh, I'm not going to hit on every one of these. If there's something here you want to delve into, you can ask in the question time at the end or come back tonight. Tonight in care group, after we do the, the meal over in the house, we'll be coming over here and have a discussion time on things related to this passage. But he throws out a bunch of examples, and it's all focused on how they look to other people. They want you to see their phylacteries, which are the boxes they had come up with so that they could fulfill what God told them in Deuteronomy 6 about uh, having the, the Word of God on their forehead and on their hand. So they made boxes. God didn't actually say to do that, but they made boxes, put rolled, little tiny 
scrolls with a few scripture verses on it, and they wore that on their hand, they wore it on the head. Well, the Jews in general, the observant Jews, the faithful Jews, were doing that. It wasn't just the scribes and Pharisees. But the scribes and Pharisees were making them bigger than everybody else. So that it was, it was the same four verses. They had four verses, four little scrolls. The boxes had compartments in it, broken up into four compartments. And they had these little scrolls in there for four particular verses. And all of them were doing that. But the Pharisees had the bigger ones and the scribes. I, I, from this point, I'm probably just going to say Pharisees. But that's scribes and Pharisees, okay? Save me a few words. Um, they love the place of honor. Oh, the tassels. They let their tassels be longer than everybody else's. That also is tied to a verse over in Numbers 15. Uh, they love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in marketplaces. They want to be called rabbi. And here we get into a series of verses where Jesus talks about titles. Don't, let, don't be called rabbi. One is your teacher. Um, let me go to this version. Hang on a second. Yeah, so he talks about about being called rabbi, and only one should be that. This is in verse eight. Yeah, one is your teacher, the Christ. Verse nine. Don't let it. Don't call anyone else father, for one is your father; he is in heaven. Don't be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Um, in the New American Standard, it says, "Don't be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ." So, just an aside on this. Jesus is not saying across the board, don't use the words father and teacher. Those words in their language, the Greek words in our, or the, the Hebrew words they spoke, the Greek, uh, in our word language in English, we have words that mean things and they apply in certain contexts. So he's not saying abandon those words. And this is something, uh, if you have questions, we can talk um, tonight about this too. But um, in... Just in Matthew alone, Jesus uses the word father reflecting normal factual use of the language, not talking about God as father, but people and their fathers. In Matthew 10, 21 and 37, Matthew 15, 5 through 6, Matthew 19, 19 and 29, Matthew 21, 31. Just to look at one of those, that the, la- the closest one to where we are is Matthew 21, 31. Uh, and this is the parable of the two sons. Which of the two did the will of his father? The answer was the latter. He had said, I wouldn't go, but then he went to go work in, the, in the, the fields. Well, Jesus doesn't argue about the term father over there and say, well, I shouldn't be calling him father. We need to call him some other name. Dad, let's use dad. We won't use father. That's not what this means in Matthew 23. The context is people who are doing things to be seen by men who are loving honor from men rather than them. They're seeking honor for themselves, not for God. And in that context, wanting titles that make you stand out compared to other people. That's, what's, that's what this is about. Um, so when we look at these three things, they say and do not do. They create heavy burdens for people and don't help. They do their works to see be seen by men. I think it's useful when you have these bad examples to think of, well, what's the opposite? Because that's probably something that would be good for me to do. So when you look at the first one, say and don't do, what would be the opposite of that? You say and do it, what do we call that? If someone regularly does what they say. Leading by example, integrity being a man of your word. Integrity is the one word that sums that up. 
You're the same consistently whether people are watching or not. That's what it means to be a man or a woman of integrity. What about this second one? What would be the opposite of this one? What do you think? Help others? Okay, so help. fundamentally, the burdens have come from what the Pharisees are discerning are ha- what people ought to do. So they're thinking they're the right things, but they're not helping them to succeed. So the opposite would be to try to help people to be righteous before God, right? Now, you actually, anybody else have a thought on that? What would be an opposite? Grace and compassion. Grace and compassion. Yeah, so... This last part, do not help, compassion is what would motivate you to help someone. And being gra- extending grace to people, you know, why do you got to create a heavy burden? Maybe there's a lighter burden you can help someone to go in the right direction in pursuing God. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to call it, uh, I'm going to go with compassion here, but you stick your own word in there. Integrity, compassion, what do you think about this uh, third one? What's the opposite of that? I couldn't hear you. Humility. Humility. Oh, that's very good. They're seeking honor for themselves because of pride, right? So humility would be a great opposite for this. Who would you be seeking honor for? For God primarily and out of love for other people, maybe for other people too. But your driving thing is seeking honor for God, not not yourself. So these are the warnings that... um, that Jesus gives here, and, um, and I wanted you to see this verse. Now, in fairness to this verse, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's John twelve forty three. The context actually starts a little higher than that. It's not solely about the Pharisees I just want to, and the scribes. I just want to state that. It's about the rulers of the people. And it says that, and these would be the people in the Sanhedrin, the ruling governing body for the Jews. Some of the people in the Sanhedrin believed in Christ, not believed in a saving belief, but in a, they had come to where they believed he's right about a lot of things. He maybe has even been sent by God. He may be the Messiah. They, that's where they were. Some of them fully believed, and this verse isn't talking about them, but I would hold up Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were in the Sanhedrin. But there were others that, that this passage is talking about who believed, but it says... They feared the Pharisees. They were afraid they were going to be put out of the synagogue. The Pharisees, as the conservative religious leaders, were the ones apparently who had the power to kick people out of the synagogue, excommunicate them. And, and so it says that these rulers who were believing in, excuse me, in Christ, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That would have included probably probably some Sadducees and Herodians and definitely some Pharisees. But they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So, what do we, what do we have here? Let's see. We had, we had integrity, compassion, and humility. Okay. Um, woes. I'm going to go through these woes. And um, let's see. 13. He's, he's, now, so here... He's changing his focus. You can see it in the terminology. It's personal. 
Now, I'm not sure if he spoke it in the tone that Jonah used. That was a fair interpretation. It could have been an, ang- an angry kind of tone. Not that you, you weren't overly angry. Very in-your-face kind of tone. Uh, it, I think that there may have been... I think there was definitely some of that because he's fed up with them. I mean, they, they, these are some serious charges he's going to be bringing against them here. Okay? I also think, by the way, he turns to the lament at the end, 37 through 39. He still loves them. And it's, I think it's the kind of message he's giving when you're you really just you're imploring people to change. But, you know, these folks are too far gone. They're not going to change. They've had all kinds of opportunities. They could have, still have opportunity. But Jesus isn't offering them an opportunity in this, in what goes from 13 onward. Uh, when you get to 37 into the lament, it comes across as a fait accompli. You know, the time has come and gone. The door has shut. That's how it comes across to me anyway. But I think he, he now is turning specifically to them. It's in front of the multitudes and disciples that they would learn from this. But he's speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the first woe is that they shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. They won't go in, and they don't allow anybody else to go in. Uh, Remember, uh, Bob made a big deal of this um, when we started in Matthew. Jesus' primary message that he starts with in Matthew 4.17 is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we we talked about repentance... um, a good bit. It's come up a number of times since then. Uh, in that particular verse, it's a verb, metano- metanoio, meaning to change one's mind. What we normally think of, we normally quote the noun, metanoia, uh, but they, they mean the same thing. There's a really good quote I came across from F.F. F. Bruce, who's a, he's died years ago, but was a, a really good Bible scholar. Repentance involves a turning with contrition from sin to God. And that's what opens the door for saving faith and forgiveness of sin. Um, so they're doing just the opposite of what Jesus has come to do. He's called people to repent for the kingdom of God at hand. That could mean repent because otherwise you're going to be in major trouble. The kingdom of hand is coming in judgment. But Jesus in his first coming didn't come in judgment. He came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second time he comes is when he comes in judgment. So I think what this more means, it could mean both at the same time, but I think what it more means, the emphasis is on repent because the kingdom of God is here for you to become part of. And so the Pharisees and scribes are enemies of the cross, to borrow Paul's phrase from Philippians 3. They're standing in the way of the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first woe. You devour widows' houses with long prayers for a pretense. By the way, as I'm listing these woes, I'm trying to basically capture what he said. There's going to want to be one or two times where he said more than I can fit on the screen. So I'm, you're going to see a couple where I sort of summarize. These notes are for me, so I don't forget. Houses, the, the Greek word for house means literally a house, but it also means house as in, a, in an estate, your wealth. 
And that's the meaning here in this verse. They're devouring widows' wealth, their resources, their material goods. And, and you, you can picture how this is happening. Um, they are probably, and so I'm speculating now because it doesn't come out and say it, but you can picture how this is happening, that they are leading widows to contribute a whole bunch of their wealth to the temple or to the Pharisees in some way, to the local synagogue, something like that. And that's actually not necessary. That's not wrong. Jesus held up the widow given her last two, you know, coins. She was given 100%, gave more, he said, than all these wealthy people that were putting money into the, the temple, the box at the temple treasury. Um, so it's not like widows shouldn't be encouraged to give generously, but that's not what's going on here. And, that, and I can show you that with the second word, devour. This word in the Greek, it, it, well, it really pretty much means what we're used to in the English with devour. Um, where'd it go? But it, uh, it's a strong word, and it's used in several cases like to consume something completely as in eating. Uh, when Jesus gives the parable of the, of the sower with the four types of ground, the seed that falls on the road, the hard path, and the birds come and eat it. That's this word, meaning they eat it completely. They eat up all that seed. There's none left. Totally devours it. It also means to ruin, which fits here. If you devour the widow's wealth and now you leave her destitute, you've ruined her. This is all implying they're leading her astray, leading not, not that she's just knows what she's doing and is given of her own free will. Um, long prayers for a pretense. The pretense is a cover. It, and, and, and so what's going on is they're, they're leading the woman to do something that's not good for her, that's going to lead her destitute, where it's not God benefiting, it's them benefiting. And then on top of that, they're doing long prayers where the pretense, I'm going to speculate again, but you can see they pray things probably thanking God for leading this woman to be so generous and give stuff. And Jesus says in verse 14, therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. They have had two, have this up here? I, yeah, two things they're being false about. They're being false toward the widows, leaving them destitute, and they're being false toward God, praying a prayer that's not really intended to God, but it's intended to make the people hearing them think that this was all a good thing. It's a cover. All right. You travel land and sea. We're on the third one to win a proselyte. Proselyte means a convert, so someone who converts to Judaism. And then you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. So they're ruining people um, and keeping them from the kingdom of heaven. I think these three kind of go together in that the theme is ruining people. And certainly, if you take the first and third one and put them together, they are an enemy of salvation. They're keeping people from getting in the kingdom of heaven. So at this point, I want to do a little tangent, because it begs the question, how does one enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, many of you could go about this a number of ways. I could go about it a number of ways. I just want to share with you what I'm going to call life verses. And you could do the same thing. There's a whole bunch of verses in the Gospels that use the word life. 
But when I think of that question, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? Remember, Jesus started Matthew, his ministry in chapter 4, by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Matthew seven thirteen to 14, near the end of the um, Sermon on the Mount, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So, number one, there is a way that leads to destruction, and then there's another way. I haven't said what it leads to yet, but it's coming. And there are many who go, by, go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. So the narrow gate leads to life. The wide gate that's easy, the easy road leads to destruction. There are few who find life. Uh, okay, so as I'm going through, there's going to be four of these, what I'm calling life verses. Three of them also have in the context the idea of relationship with God, which goes really tightly with this. So you don't need to turn there, but you can later if you want. But in Matthew five, in Matthew 7, where this verse is from, later in that passage is where in verse 21 he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? We were doing your stuff. That's what they're saying. 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They weren't really doing righteousness. But they didn't know him. Jesus says, I never knew you. That's just a few verses after this. So I want you to, I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to kind of remember that. Life, the narrow gate, knowing Christ. Um, John 10, 10, B, the first part, A, is about the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus then says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In John 10, before this, he has the word picture of being the door. And the sheep will only come through or out because they recognize the shepherd's voice. If someone else comes, they don't know his voice, they won't follow him. There's an intimacy there of knowing a voice. Later in this chapter, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And right after that is the strong verse about security and salvation, where he says, No one can snatch them out of my hand. Um, So there again, you have life tied in the context with an intimacy with knowing Christ. John 5, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Two things about this. Hear can mean several things. It can mean I hear, and that's it. Physically, I hear. But hear can also mean you hear and take it to heart and understand it. And Jesus uses it that way in Matthew 13 when uh, disciples ask, why are you teaching everybody in parables? And he says, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. It's got to be two different meanings or it makes no sense. And he actually gives us the answer because then he says, nor do they understand. So here, here, H-E-R-E, this here, H-E-A-R, it's got a meaning to it of you're hearing the words and you're taking them to heart. You understand them and you're going to act on them. Okay? And then uh, believes 
and him who sent me. So there's two conditions he's given, and you have eternal life. The believe there is a Greek, a Greek word where it's the, noun, it's the verb form of the same Greek word that means faith. Everywhere in the New Testament where you have faith showing up, it's the noun form. And where you have believe, it's the verb form. And when you look them up in a concordance, they're one number off from each other. I think the believe one is Greek number 4100, and 4101 is, uh, is the faith one. And so this is not a believe like just an intellectual belief. It's tied fundamentally with faith. In our English, we tend to think more seriously about faith. Oh, that means I really believe. But if we just have belief alone, well, we can mean all kinds of stuff. I believe that the sun comes up every day. Well, gee whiz, I don't, doesn't affect what I'm doing. Um, but there's a belief that's just in your head, and there's a belief that impacts what you do. And, and really, I think it's fun when I'm reading the, the New Testament to actually change this because it puts emphasis in it and say, has faith. So he who hears my word and has faith in him who sent me drives that home. Now, the word of God is believe, but you need to understand what that means. This is a belief that's tied fundamentally to faith. It's the verb form of faith. All right, last one, John seventeen three, And this is eternal life that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So... Entering the kingdom of God has to do with life that Christ gives that comes in relationship with him. Going back to the woes, the Pharisees are standing in the way of all of that because they are not seeking real relationship with God. They are wanting everybody to think greatly of them, and that's really all that they're caring about. Going on into the woes, you, uh, the next one, you fools and blind men don't understand what is greater. This has to do with religious oaths, and you see that there in the passage. Um, why would you need to give an oath? What motivates that? What do you think? To show you how serious you are about it. Yeah, and Jesus is showing them here, and I'm not going to delve further into this because the logic is obvious as he's talking about it, but their, their thinking is just warped. And the whole reason you would need to do an oath is because otherwise, what, I'm not going to believe you? Well, that's a bad situation. <laughs> You've got to give an oath for anybody to believe you. Jesus says in the, in the um, um, Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes. And your no be no. Um, you pay the tithe of mint and a couple other things and neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Now note here, Jesus is not saying, he actually goes on and says you should be doing all of that. He's not saying that there's things you should optionally decide not to do. But he is saying there are weightier matters. And that is obvious when Jesus in the prior chapter said what the, the most important commandment was. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he volunteered a second one would be 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul says all the rest of the law is built on those two. Um, yeah. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What a word picture. Our Lord really knows how to paint good word pictures. Can you imagine that? You got a cup of water and you, you don't want to drink a gnat, so you've you know, you get it out, most of us might just pitch the water and start over with some new water. They worry about the gnat and swallow the camel. This is the key thing. They're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And that's a theme through these last several of the woes. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside full of extortion and self-indulgence. Extortion means you're manipulating things to rob others of what is theirs. And self-indulgence means that you're delighting the flesh with what you have, what you already have. So these two go together. You're taking from others so that you have more, and you can use it to delight yourself. I, I have this word picture that comes to mind here. It's, I don't know if this is right or adds any value, but on the self-indulgence, delighting the flesh, when I was reading this, I was thinking of the Pharisees being like, a kid when you're in the bathtub and you're playing with all your toys, except they're bathing themselves in their stuff. They just got all their stuff, and it's just all about them and their stuff. And that's the. And I don't have the reference ready, but Jesus also rebuked them in another place because they were saying that what they had was Corbin, and thus they didn't have to give it to their parents, didn't have to help their parents because they were keeping it. For God, well, they weren't really keeping it for God. They were keeping it for their thing, um, the synagogue where they had their employment, the thing that they were doing. But um, you can see how they've got their priorities all out of whack because they're not focused on the inside. God's caring about the heart. They're focused on what people think. Do we look good? Just as an aside, a thing that comes to mind here. Um, for me, I like to study the Bible, but I have to do a reality check every now and then. Am I doing that because I love God? Am I doing that so that other people will think good of me? Because that's, that's a hollow, empty reason. That's not a reason to do it. And I just throw that out there for those of you that study the Bible, that are in a Bible study. Be, check every now and then between you and God. You're doing it because you love Him. Not because someone else thinks you should do it. Um, okay, shrinking these so I can fit the last two on. You're like whitewashed tombs, appear righteous on the outside, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness on the inside. Uh, you build the tombs of the prophets and say that you would not have killed them. So, on one hand, this makes sense. Of course, they don't not going to say that they would have killed those those prophets. They they're honoring the word of God in that they're trying to take it literally. Um, but Jesus is again pointing out a flaw in their logic because they're admitting that they're the descendants of those who killed the prophets. Now, the thing that comes to my mind here, you, we could go a number of ways here. I'm not going to take time to go read this passage, but note it down if you're interested um, in reading this later yourself. I had a conversation with Brazos Webb uh, about two weeks ago. We were talking, and he had been reading in Daniel, and he told me about this passage and how it had struck him, and I went back and read it. 
And it's amazing, think, contrasting the... Brazos and I were talking about it in regard to our nation and our forefathers. But in contrasting the Pharisee, scribes and Pharisees' attitude, oh, we would not have killed those prophets. And they're just leaving it at that. It's kind of a deflecting of any blame to somebody else, in that case, a past generation. It's really eye-opening to read what Daniel does just between him and God in Daniel chapter 9 because he has read the prophecy of Jeremiah about the 70 years before the nation will be restored and he starts confessing sin and talking to God about all the sins of his forefathers and his nation and he says, we, repeatedly. Daniel wasn't even alive for some of the things that had happened in the past, that he's joining in confessing. And from what we see of him as a God-fearing man in the book of Daniel, and I actually God speaks to him as a holy man in one, through one of the other prophets, I think Ezekiel, um, he probably has not partaken in the, the really offensive sins of his own generation. Uh, the idol worship that was going on that we talked about in Sunday school this morning, going on in Jerusalem right before the fall of the nation. And yet, even though he was not alive for some of those past sins and wasn't probably partaking in the sins of the current generation, he's including himself because he's part of the nation. And he's confessing sin to God, and it's a completely different response to having a lineage who has sinned than what you see the Pharisees and the scribes taking. Because he's joining in that confessing, my people have sinned, we have sinned. He doesn't even do what I just did there. My people have sinned, not me, I'm over here. The the sinners are over there. We have sinned. Brazos and I, in talking about that, we were talking about our country with abortion as a major stain on our nation. Um, I think of it in terms of slavery as a stain on the nation in the past because I'm a descendant on both sides of my family of people from the South and none of them owned slaves, but I think it's because they were poor dirt farmers who didn't have enough money to own a slave. And Anyway, Daniel 9 is worth chewing on in a quiet time and then thinking about us today in this nation, which is not the topic of this message, but um, his response is totally different than the Pharisees and the scribes. So, when you look at this list, I'm close to the end, by the way. Um, I'm going to save this talking about I want to have a conversation, if anybody's interested, tonight. Are there things for our church that come to you as a warning, a red flag, where we need to avoid hypocrisy in some fashion? We're not going to do that now because we're out of time, and we have a care group tonight. But if there's something that pops, if nothing pops to mind, great. (laughs) I hope nothing pops to mind, but if something pops to mind... And I'm not talking about churches in general. I'm talking about our church where we need to root it out. Well, we need to talk about it. 
So that's another possible fodder tonight. Nobody may think of anything. We may just go into other stuff tonight. But uh, I want to talk a little about humility. Tammy brought up humility as the opposite of that third warning. At the end of the warnings, Jesus in verse 11 and 12, I'm back in Matthew 23, says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. This is in reaction to the Pharisees looking for honor from others and wanting the titles that give them some authority over other people. The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Uh, while I'm talking, I want, well, I'm going to read through this list real quick, and then we're going to quit. But I've been reading... Uh, Gail and I have been reading this book that's at the top with Zach. And the guy had an excellent thing on humility, and he listed these characteristics. And it was about two weeks ago when I read them. I thought they were really good, and so I've just thrown them up here. On the, If you're taking notes, or the back of the note sheet, I have a place where you can list one or, one or two that stand out to you. My challenge to you is as I'm reading this list, you talk to God. And think, is there one or two that just stands out as something you're challenged in? Because that could be something where you could look to talk to God about how humble you are and where you might need to make application. So I, I think that all of these, he didn't give verses to go with these. I could provide verses, I think, for all of these. So I'm just saying that because this is his list. It's not my list. I didn't go dig it out of Scripture, but I think these are all scriptural. A humble person no longer compares himself to others. He seeks no recognition for himself. He sees every person equally as a child of God and honors him or her as such. Now, I think, in fairness to the author and the context, this is talking about other believers. Um... He enjoys hearing others praised, even if he is forgotten. He forgives. His life is marked by patience. His relationships are known for peace and unity. He encourages others. I think for most of us, there's going to be a few things on that list where you're likely to, in all honesty, think, I'm pretty good at that one, and you probably are. I don't mean a false humility there. But there's probably one or two things in that list that you're not so good at. And so my suggestion is the one that stands out that you're not so good at, that's one to pray about and try to work on this week as part of leading your heart to be humble. Okay, a few questions. Do you say and do not do what you've said? This is convicting for me. We talked about it being integrity. I really want to be a man of my word. I try to do what I say. But there are times where circumstances conspire against me and I fail to follow through. Um. But I have one, I'm just going to admit it in front of everybody, that with my wife, I have gone years telling her I'm going to clean out my office and clean out a whole bunch of boxes that were in a shed. And I am finally now doing it. But when I say repeatedly I'm going to do that and I don't do it, bless my wife, it, 
it makes her feel like she's not important because it's something that mattered to her. And I could give you a long list of reasons why it never happened. But when it's over years, I can't give myself a pass. I've not been a man of integrity in that one area. Do you say and do not do? Are you a person of integrity? Are you compassionate? Do you want to help people succeed? And I mean in their walk with God. Do you seek honor from God or from people? Your answer might be both. But you need to chew on what should the focus be. Is there hypocrisy in your life? And, and more important, I think almost all of us, if we're honest, we can think of things where we have been hypocritical. This is where you want to focus. How many start removing it and change that thing so you're not a hypocrite in that area? Are you a humble person? I really, really, that list of eight things, I hope you wrote something down or you filed it away in your head. Um, do I have I have it here. Yeah, 1 Peter 5, 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You don't want to have God resisting you. From what I see in Scripture, this is the number one way to be on the outside with God where he's pushing against you if you're not humble. He resists the proud. He resists the proud. Even though you're, you're a child of his and he loves you and you're going to be in heaven with him, if you're being proud in a given area, you can expect resistance because he doesn't want you to be in that way. But when you're humble, he gives you grace. You want grace in your life? Here's the formula. Be humble. The method, be humble. Formula would be, got to have an equal sign. Humility equals grace plus God. Something like that. I don't know. But he resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And is there a need to change the way you think? Metanoia. God wants to change us. He's changed you. If you know him as Lord and Savior, he has changed you fundamentally at some point. Second Corinthians 5.17 says... If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're new in your identity. But then, he doesn't just leave us where we are. He continues working on us, changing us, and helping us grow in Christ-likeness. All right, let me pray, and we'll sing a song and be done. Father, thank you for your word that you've given us and for preserving it for close to 2,000 years so that we could read this passage today. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you taught with authority. Help us to understand your word rightly and to see how it applies in our lives. Lord, I, I don't know how this applies specifically in each person's life here. I only know what you're laying on my heart for me. But you know everybody's heart here. You know where they are a hypocrite. You know where they are, are um, putting themselves ahead of others. You know where each of us is seeking other people's honor rather than yours. Lord, please work in us and don't let us, don't let us wriggle out from under that, but help us to change. Yeah, that's what you want. Father, please give us pure hearts. Help us to be humble and to lay aside pride. 
and to be faithful followers of yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.